Hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor live video show. I have a fabulous guest on tonight, and yes, you guys know him. I've got T.O. from the chat. We are going to talk about a most fantastic subject, the background for the LDS endowment like you've never heard before. And so let's get this show on the road. First, I will adjust my sound so I don't blow your ears out. Let's get going. Woohoo. Yeah, baby. That's for you, Mark. Hey, uh, tonight I have a guest who I am going to bring on right now. Let's take a look at Travis, my dear and good friend. Travis, welcome to my show, brother. Say hi to everybody. Hello, com comrades. Good to see everybody. <laughs> hey, it looks like we've got some new people in here, too. Woohoo! All right, this is awesome. Um, the reason I brought Travis on this show and the reason I asked him to be on the show, number one, he invited me to buy some books by Algis Uzdovnis. And for whatever reason, I did. Uh, I bought the one he recommended and I bought like four or five others that he didn't. And I've read them all. They're absolutely sensational. And so I realized, wait a minute, uh, this guy has some good ideas, and we have become good friends. We talk on the phone fairly often. Uh, he is always sharing something new that he is learning that I honestly thought I had a handle on, and yet he always brings new information in, which is one of the things I love to do in life is learn. So, Travis, why don't you start off by telling us just a little bit about yourself and why and what you like to read. I mean, look at the books behind him, you guys. He is as adept at reading as I am. I have a rival here. <laughs> Tell us about yourself. Who are you, young man? Well, I'm, um, I, I've always enjoyed reading. I, I, I do a lot of it, and um, uh, it has nothing to do with my profession. I'm, I'm a I'm a farmer. I do biodynamic and dry farm methodology and, um, you know, real kind of holistic style farming. And, um, you know, some of that we will, will um, kind of come into play and, and integrate with some of our discussions. I think we'll, we'll find. Um, but ultimately, you know, I, I, 
uh, like yourself, you know, I was really searching for for answers um, to the inadequacies that were provided um, by the uh, the institution um, of the uh, you know the the church. Um, uh, they're saying your audio is bad; it's crackling. Oh, that's kind of what I was saying earlier. Didn't you say you could go to your phone? Yeah, we can try that. Um, why, don't, why don't we try that? Can you do that right now? Yeah. Well, you know, let's try this. How about how does that sound a little bit better? No, now it's got a whole. Okay, now talk. Now talk. Hold it. Now I can't hear you at all. Should I go out of the chat and then come back in? No, no, no. That's good. Keep talking for a sec. Um, Keep talking. That's a little better. Is that a little better? I, uh, I think so. Keep uh, that was, yeah, it, it cut off the, uh, the crackles anyway. Okay. Maybe I should be a little bit closer. That, that's a lot better, at least for me. Uh, how about the audience? Can you hear him better now? Keep to, you're going to have to keep and I might not. I, maybe I don't, don't talk loud enough. Should I talk a little bit louder? Is that the, is that the problem, too? I, um... There's still a little crackly. Yeah, Moonman says it's a little crackly. I can hear it being just a smidgen crackly. Okay. Um, but the volume is better also. Well, Paul, Doug Vincent said it's horrible. Well, let's. Um, Can you go to your phone? Yeah, let's let's kick out, and then I'll I'll jump back in from the, okay. the other. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take you off. Yeah, you kick out and come back in. That'll work. In the meantime, I will tell you something about Travis that just floors me. Every subject, and there's very few people that that I've been able to do this with. Most of them have been a guests on my show and you people that I talk to in the chat, but uh, whenever I am talking about a, a subject, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, science or philosophy or history, something with the Book of Mormon or the Book of Abraham or whatever. When I talk to Travis, he's already read the book I'm talking about. And it's not that I buy a lot of specialty books, but in some respects, I do have specialty books. And Travis has already read them, and he has digested them, and he comes up with information <laughs> that I have not had before, which is really quite surprising and enjoyable to me. We've always had outstanding discussions, so I've enjoyed his time. So let me take a minute to uh, say hi to all of you guys while he's coming back in. Dirt Dart, Moonman55, Elisa Gallien, good to see you. Todd Andre Z, thank you for showing up. Doug Vincent, thank you. Moksha Raver, welcome. Tim Rathbone, how are you? It looks like I saw Dan Vogel earlier uh, also, welcome Dan Vogel in the house. Yes, uh, Mark Crispin, of course, you are here as well. Uh, Ephraim Haas, thank you for showing up. Wardified, looks like you're here okay. Travis is back. Let's get him back on and see if he's got a better reception this time. What do you think, Travis? I'm not sure. How does it sound? <laughs> That's perfect. Okay. That's I, I can't... Uh, I, I can't read. I can't see as well because it's just a 
small picture, so you might have to read some of the, the text for Does us today. That help better? That's a little bit better. Yeah. That's a little bit better. I've got a different yeah. adjustment that way too. And then what happens is when I put the uh, slides on, yeah, they're all saying it's better too. So awesome, awesome. Very good. Okay. Uh, so what I can do is when I put the slides on and we start going through these slides on the hermeticism materials, um, it, it'll it'll push us off to the side anyway, and it will take the majority of the window. So you should mm -hmm. be able to. We'll, we'll see. We'll so see. anyway, um, more more to the point, your your interest is intersecting with mine in many instances, uh, like Dan Vogels has, and I've had him on the show several times, and we are up for having him on the show here again in just a few weeks. Uh, I've had uh, several uh, Dr. Uh, Richard Carrier. Uh, I have done historical Jesus studies. I've read his materials. So why are you so interested in the stuff that I like? <laughs> why is it you are interested in the scholarship? You seem to lean more toward the esoteric. Am I misreading you? No, I, 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 um, I, I think that uh, for, for me, the um the esoteric is is kind of you know plays into some of the mystery schools and some of the that that ancient stuff that um you know as a kid it always reminded me of indiana jones you know and so yeah. you know there's that kind of fun part to it um but as a as an adult it's more about um you know the meaning and value that that I get that, you know, gives me a little bit more richness in life um, that, uh, that I find by bringing some of those things together. Um, yeah. I, I don't think that, I, I think that, you know, when we're, when we're lacking um, some of these connections to our past and the origin and, you know, we, we lose meaning and we lose value. And so, you know, I, um, I have a, a great deal of empathy for, you know, my, my close friends that are, um, you know, have been in or outside of the, the church um, because of what I describe as, as uh, a loss of meaning and value in, in, this, in our symbolism and our, a, a lot of the things that, that we practice and that type of thing. So when I could find something that, that enlightens that it, it just, it makes my, my life a little bit better. And, uh, when I can share it with somebody and, and there's, there's kind of a resonance, um, you know, that that's, that's worthwhile too. You know, it's like what we talked about sharing a, a good meal with a friend or something. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now we're sharing a good show with a friend. Woohoo. Mm. Yeah. Well, the reason, um, we, we're, we have decided basically that this subject is pretty extensive. And so in order to process it so that the audience can understand why Trev or, uh, Travis has this uh, interpretation, which I find resonates with me extremely well, here's what we came up with. The reason we're going to focus on the Hermeticism tonight as a background is because 
we recognize the Freemasonic connections without question. That That's not even an issue. But what is the basis for the Freemasonry? And we know it's the Hermetic. The Greco-Roman Egyptian background of the Hermetic materials. And what is the Kabbalistic basis is going to the Hermetic as well. Now, Travis has shared some materials with me on the Kabbalistic aspect, more or less, the Judeo background, the Jewish background, which is based in Hermeticism also, but with the LDS Temple Endowment. And I was so intrigued, I asked him to come on my show. But to do this properly, we need to set the basis for Hermeticism. So you're ready to go on this, Travis? I hope so. Oh, look at this. Radio Free Mormon. Welcome. He even said he likes all the great guests I have on my show. I like your great guest, too, on your show, RFM. Thank you for showing okay. up. Yes, RFM in the house. Okay. Uh, yeah, let's go to this first slide. Uh, yeah, so you can see that fairly easy, can't you, Travis? Um, not on my phone. You're going to have to, uh, you're going to have to do these reading. I, I can see pictures, but it's about a, a half an yeah, inch. It's all good. Okay. Well, sorry about that. Your phone connection is superb for sound though. So, okay. Okay. So our theme being the basic background is what is the hermetic. And my wife asked me that too. She said, you're going to have to explain what you mean by hermetic. Uh, we all kind of have an idea on Kabbalah. So here is hermetic. And again, it's a generalized view is the knowledge that's attributed to the ancient Egyptian scribal God Thoth. And of course his connection here, the Greek angle of Thoth, this, the second picture there from the left, the uh, ibis headed guy. Well, the Greek connection is Hermes. And interestingly, in the Judeo-Christian, it is Enoch. I've got that in another slide. Specifically, though, we talk about Hermes Trismegistus in the branches of knowledge of astrology, magic, alchemy, and medicine. The idea here is that there is a branch of knowledge. There is a base of knowledge that is handed down through time. And that is the origin of the hermetic idea of the logos. So, Travis, uh, is that basically hermetic enough for you? Is that how you're grasping the hermetic point? I think that's great. Yeah, that, that's, that's fantastic. Okay. Okay, so what this does... and. You know, this happens virtually everywhere. Yes, some of us do harp on uh, Hugh Nibley for some of his parallel mania type approaches and all that. But his theme of it just appeared like he constantly went to ancient Egypt within the writing systems of the West. That was pretty good because a lot does go back to ancient Egypt. And... uh Travis, uh, Uzdavnis says that also, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, in his materials. Uh-oh. Oh, come on. Okay, there we go. So here we have Thoth. Now, that is a good-looking Thoth, the scribe of the gods. He was the Egyptian Hermes. The thing about Thoth, the reason we have to have him in this is he was the tongue of the creator at the creation. 
and the creations are in his mind first. It is in his mind first. That was the emphasis. And based through that, through his thought, it came out as the word. And of course, all of us think of John 1 and 1, right, Travis? You were going to say that, weren't you? John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Yes, the heart from the heart to the tongue. So he's the lieutenant of the sun god. The relationship is the same as with the moon reflecting the sunshine. He's the reckoner of years, the lord of time. He foresees the future. Thoth is the secretary and messenger of the gods. He sets the day of every man's birth and death. And he is the keeper of annals, of festivals, of coronations, and jubilees. He is the very word. So based on that, Travis, how do you think, how do you think this connects with the Kabbalistic connection somewhat? What, what's your approach with that? Well, you know, the, um, the uh, underneath underneath all of this there's a theme of um of creation and uh, the theme of creation i would say is 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 something that is uh, uh it just it doesn't get enough attention that you know or focus in the right way um we find that uh, same theme with the the uh, sefer yetzra we the book of creation um which is also attributed to Abraham. And, it is. Um, yeah. It is. And and as we'll discuss a little bit later, that um that's something that Hugh Nibley did point out, the 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 similarity between what the book of Abraham, uh the translation of the vision, I would say, of the book of Abraham, um and its similarity to to some of this Jewish mysticism or Kabbalah. Um, when when we come to creation, also something that we'll we'll probably discuss a little bit later. Um, there's also an interplay and an importance of calendar, which um, you know plays a real careful uh, or you know an important role in temples. Um, we can even bring it into temple theology under under kind of Barker's context, Margaret Barker's context, um, oh, yeah. and in a lot of other ways too. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so well, the thing that I find um, most most valuable um, to, to keep in mind is the the underlying theme of creation um, and calendar and, you know, the uh, as as part of the, the magic or part of the knowledge that is is transmitted through this hermeticism. Yeah. And Doug's asking uh, what time frame. Are we in the Greco-Roman period, Doug? Uh, probably Hermeticism is, it, it's in early Christianity. Uh, Gnosticism, according to some sources, were definitely influenced by Hermeticism. So we're talking maybe, what, correct me if I'm wrong, Travis, 100 BC to uh, on. <laughs> it, it, uh, it might even be earlier than that. But yeah, it comes all the way through early Christianity. And it never... It goes underground during the Dark Ages. Actually, what it did is it hopped over to Arabia. The Arabians, yeah. the Arabians kept the science and mathematics and philosophy alive while Europe went into the Dark Ages after the fall of Rome and the barbarian times. And then through the Renaissance, interestingly enough, it just happened to be 
the hermetic materials that they had refound, and Marcinio Piccino uh, had had these translated, and that's what caused that flowering forth with the with the hermetic materials. Interestingly enough, and Joseph Smith did have influence from the hermetics, as we'll we'll talk about a little bit. So this this was Thoth, and now on this one, uh, it's kind of really cool mystical art on the right, and yet it the symbolism is there. That notice that purple caduceus in line with the interlocking circles, the six interlocking circles with the seventh in the center, and the uh, the horned sun disk symbolized up above. That's kind of cool. And then the pyramids, of course, and then Thoth standing there. Yes. What they offer is a layout of the cosmos. Uh, maps, basically. The philosophy of reality, which was recorded on the emerald tablet, and that's that green tablet there in the bottom middle. Now, the emerald tablet, the Tabula Smaragdina, is a very, very famous, is probably the oldest religious uh, cryptic text written on stone. And these are where all of the secrets, the amazing paradox with this emerald tablet is all of the secrets are revealed of the universe. But they're revealed in such a way that you don't have a clue that they're revealed. Uh, it, it is the most fascinating paradox of anything written so far. It is in code, and yet it's straightforward. When you read it, you go, well, yeah, okay, so. It doesn't even appear as actual knowledge. It's not gibberish. You can understand it when it's translated, but and yet it's, it's hidden in plain sight. It, it's one of the most fascinating things. And this is where Enoch, Thoth and Enoch, Enoch had the... Uh, Marduk had the Babylonian tablets of destiny. It's kind of a, there's kind of a lineage anciently. And, and of course, we have the hidden text Joseph Smith brought out, the Book of Mormon, the Book of Abraham from Papyri and all that. We've been through all that. But the theme of the transmission of the record through time is what tapped into, is what Joseph Smith has tapped into. And they're all associated with the cosmological domain, Thoth and Hermes, and of course, in Joseph Smith's view, we have Moroni. All of these are the messengers, and so, and that's the meaning of Angelos in the Greek is a messenger, a person who's going to tell us something, right, Travis? I don't want to do all the talk, and I'm gonna don't just say, yup, elaborate here. <laughs> I, I don't want to take you out of the discussion. Let, let's go. Well, this next. well, we're still, we're still, you know, this is uh, there's a lot to a lot to just overlay in in the hermeticism, you know. So, uh, yeah, keep going, right. keep charging on. Okay, I'm going to keep charging on. So this emerald tablet idea will come back time and time again to in tonight's discussion. I have not listed all of the 30 precepts or whatever, but we do talk about several of the main ones in the course of the discussion. And this is the gentleman, Hermes Trismegistus, who is credited with that emerald tablet. Uh, and it means thrice greatest. You know, everyone asks, you know, what does what is thrice greatest? Why why three times? One potential explanation is he has the 
the association with the three kingdoms of knowledge, the vegetal, the animal, and the mineral. Uh, another explanation that I have read was the he is the prophet, priest, and king. So there again is this threefold division. And of course, in antiquity, three is a huge number for sacredness. Uh, it's it's really impressive how often three shows up everywhere and including in our modern particle physics, believe it or not. And I have just had uh, Travis purchase Leonora Leet's materials on the Kabbalah, so he'll be able to verify that the number three in the Kabbalah is absolutely gigantic from Leonora Leet's interpretation. She goes the sacred geometric direction, more or less. This is why Hermes is spinning that basketball-looking ball on his finger. No, he's not being a Harlem Globetrotter. That is the earth. And then, of course, the alchemy is the operation of the sun. There's number one. Again, this tripartite division. Number two is astrology, the operation of the stars. And number three is thergy, the operation of the gods. And of course, he's like an ancient Superman. He's the founder of science, religion, mathematics, geometry, alchemy, philosophy, medicine, and magic. I mean, this guy is like a rock star, right, Travis? He did it all and gave it all to us. So what else do you have on uh, Hermes Trismegistus? Um, no, nothing, nothing to add to that. That's, that's great. Um, the, the, the context for Latter-day Saints is going to be the Enoch, the Enoch archetype. And so, um, you know, those can be juxtaposed pretty easily. And so if, if, if there's a, a Latter-day Saint, you know, listener, they might want to, just think of it in those terms in their in their mind. If you haven't read too much on hermeticism, Ex express more that connection with Enoch that you're getting at when you bring Enoch in. Why? Why Enoch and not say someone else? Well, from a um, we'll just say just from a, a from some of the Jewish literature, what we'll what we'll find, um, and and even we look into the the Old Testament, um, you know. Enoch is directly associated with the cosmos. Um, he's associated with the, the first temple, in a sense, uh, which is different from anything that the, uh, the, the first Adam was, was associated with, maybe more of altar, something of that nature. But Enoch is more associated with temple, uh, new creation. Um, in his... In his in his creation, he lives 365 days, which is the solar calendar. So he is representative of a solar being, a, a sol heavenly solar being. Um, and yet in that representation, uh, at least from the Hermeticism, that, that entity is always more of a Mercury um, instead of the sun. You know? So we find the Hermes closer to the Mercury rather than the sun. But, um, and part of that, we would, we would, uh, we would understand as a type for investiture, um, that Enoch is, uh, or, or Hermes is a type for investiture, divine investiture from the highest God, um, which enables creation through his word, through his tongue, that type of thing. 
So, um, I don't know. That, that's that's something I think is 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 good to think about because all of the cosmos and the nature of the new creation moving forward from Noah um, is an Enochian creation, um, a Hermetic creation, the yeah, terrestrial and- creation, the uh, another word, the temporal salvation. Mm-hmm. It's a and so this theme of the temple being a small-scale model of the universe, uh, yeah, that was Nibley's way of depicting it. And yet, we find that that is how the ancients actually depicted all of those ancient buildings. It didn't matter. Like you were saying to me earlier in the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, uh, the return of the second generation of the generation that came back to rebuild that temple. Uh, they did something drastically wrong. What was that? Well, there. When we read a lot of the the text from the the Dead Sea Scroll, there's a polemic from whoever whoever wrote them. Some people would attribute to Messines. Some people attribute them to, to you know different groups. Regardless who they're attributed to, the the group uh, has strong antagonism towards the Jerusalem Temple and the Herodian Jerusalem temple priesthood um mm. there that whole institution is considered corrupt and apostate and the interesting reason why is you know it's seemingly benign but it's not the interestingly interesting reason why that they're um they're so antagonistic the dead sea scrolls peoples are against the jerusalem temple is because of a changing of the calendar you think why why would they do that? Why would they be so mad over, you know, changing a calendar or dates or something like that? But anciently, the temple and all its its festivals, feasts, its sacrifices, all of those were, were strictly observed by calendar. And so by changing something, um, it's, it's, it symbolizes a change in the whole system. And if part of that change comes from the outside in, it's considered, you know, unkosher. It's considered maybe, uh, you know, corrupt, fallible, you know, filthy, whatever it is. It's not consecrated. Right. And um, so when, when, we, when we look at the conflict in that, that early, you know, that second temple period, uh, even to the later portion of the second temple period before the um, temple was destroyed, uh, we get to see, we get to understand a little bit more by understanding the significance of, you know, how that that calendar plays, and what we will find the the creation story and things like that. How those how those play into the purity of the temple offering. Um, maybe we're going off on a tangent there, but uh, we might be a little bit. But it'll introduce us into one of our later shows. We will go into the detail to show you the explicit details of that calendar situation. It's just interesting that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the calendar of the Enoch texts was one of the books that was that came through more or less. The Greek Enoch, not so much, but the calendrical, the Aramaic, yeah. the Hebrew Enoch was the later one, but we've and now we found the old Slavonic, all kinds of fun stuff. But yeah, so yeah, I just wanted to I wanted to add that we have uh, very interesting contexts from across the ancient world, really, that play into this hermetic theme. Uh, 
and the Hermetic theme is one of the overarching great ones. And this is just to briefly orient us to the theology in the sacred book of Hermes Trismegistus to Asclepius. He was one of his students. And he says, you will recognize all things are in one and the one embraces all. This is the essence of alchemy. And so you go, well, alchemy, that's voodoo science, that's woo-woo, that's bunk. Hold on, wait. From a modern literalist perspective, yes, but is that what the ancient alchemists were thinking? No. Here was their theme. And when I discovered this, uh, I, was, I, I began to pick up an interest in studying the ancient mysteries a little bit better here. The alchemy is to bring the opposites together, everything into one, one great big whole. Uh, in ancient Egyptian, the bringing of Ray and Osiris, light and dark, upper and lower worlds, together for an eternal and perfect existence, because what we have here, interestingly now, is, and that whole was a one eternal round, and that is why I put this picture in here, is because, and then over on the lower right of that picture, you see, I just had enough space to, to show the woman holding the moon. There's a gentleman across from her holding the moon. And then over on the left, you have the, the guy in the center. Then over on the left, you have the same thing, a man holding the sun, and, and the guy I had to cut off was holding the sun also. So the the cosmological sun, moon, and stars, the one eternal round, the three pillars of the world, the heavens, the earth, and the underworld, was a gigantic theme in all of the ancient religions. I mean, this is the dur on key of the ancient, uh, was it Sumerians? Babylonians, I can't remember which one. I'm going to show my great ignorance here, but the dur on key literally meant the link between the heaven and the earth. That is the theme we're talking about, is that link. And that is what the word religion is supposed to mean, a linking back to. We are a part of the whole. But this is the one, the many ancient philosophy thing. So did I elaborate that fairly well? What do you have to say about that? that yeah, that's that's good. The, um, another thing, too, is someone might ask, well, to the ancients, why was some of this important? You know, was there, was there a tangible, you know, reason why somebody would, you know, just need this, this knowledge? Yeah, um, I, the the answer for me at least there there's a, a number of reasons but particularly with um with kingship if if somebody's going to govern um they need to be able to understand the the agriculture cycles they need to be able to understand the um the cycles of husbandry you know flocks and these kinds of things and they need to be able to um identify all the optimums if they're able to do this then you know they're, they're going to be able to, to produce surplus growth, you know, civilization. If, um, you know, all civilizations need a staple. If they have a staple crop, you know, usually that allows for, you know, the uh, civilization to expand into other kinds of 
you know, artisans and works and things like that. So um, the knowledge of being able to bring the, the light of the heavens, the stars, the moon, the sun, to come down and bear upon the earth and the life upon earth is, is this kind of creation knowledge. Um, it, it seems like it's simple, maybe farmer's almanac kind of stuff. But um, ultimately, this is the treasure of the patriarchs. This is the treasure of um, tribal peoples throughout the world, you know, kind of thing. Um, being able to understand and, and anticipate um, warm, cool, light, dark, uh, moist, dry, something as simple as that is, um, in essence, power. And bringing in these all together, again, we see the alchemy work and the unity of all that, the atonement, at onement of all these, um, because it becomes intelligible and it becomes workable. Um, it, it's not something that, that man is not, not participating in. For you know, every, every farmer knows that if you leave the land by itself, things will happen and wild growth will occur. But you know, with the proper understanding of, of the cycles, um, you know, plants can be domesticated. They can be trained to produce more seed or more leaf or more flower. Or, you know, you know, animals can become more productive. All these kinds of things fall yeah, into play. The wet this dry, yeah, the wet dry involves the soil, not in a symbolic way, but in a literal way. The 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 light dark, the heat cold, affects. The cosmos, which affects the earth. So this really is actually a total connection, isn't it? So you can see why the alchemy would think that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, okay, so if I'm hearing you right, correct me if I'm wrong then, um, this, this is uh, an intelligent involvement with nature. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, uh, it has to be. Otherwise, you're going to fail to remain alive. And I know you say, yeah, duh, that sounds so basic. But do we really stay in touch with nature in our modern electronic age like we used to even back in my grandfather's day? I'm not so convinced we do. How many of us can go name all the constellations of the stars in the night sky tonight, for instance? Beside and, you, <laughs> and, and we we can recall also in um, you know Sumerian, um, Egyptian, um, ancient Israelite um, kingship that the king was really responsible as that intercessor or mediator between the heavens and earth. The the king is responsible for bringing rain to rain down on the crops to produce grain. Um, if there was drought in the land, it's multiply associated with a bad king or bad leadership. And even at times the king is sacrificed in order to, you know, bring greater rain or this kind of thing. So, um, yeah. you know, the, the king is, or the king, the prophet, the priest, this, this um, hermetic archetype, you know, is that, that personage who almost is a temple of self, you know, binding heaven and earth. And um, he, he takes the dominion for it, in a sense. We use, that, we use that dominion word in the same sense of maybe the Adam dominion that we read in the, in the Genesis account. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. And um, so, 
and and that's a living bond now not only living with uh with with us humans with the sky and the earth but living in the sense of the plants the animals the seeds all of that is emphasized in the old testament periodically throughout uh of that constant interaction and uh and cycle circulation as far as that goes they keep they keep telling them no you're not doing this right you're going to be destroyed and you say well what a what a what a difficult god that is is that a difficult god or is that the prophet sometimes trying to tell the people hey uh you're off of the natural cycle get back on it or you will die you got to do this right so there is that angle i think absolutely i i i agree and and you you mentioned cycle and this is an important aspect too um because within hermeticism uh within the the mystery components of it the liturgies of it um there's a conceptualization of an ascension mm. and there's also a conceptualization of a cycle and these two conceptualizations cannot mix it, you, at some point you have to pick one or the other and so um that that's one of the um that's one of the things that we're going to have to you know discuss a little bit the the current um the current theme is typically a an ascension that's what that's what it's looked upon for example the temple endowment is often looked as an, an ascension rather than a cycle um in hermeticism i think that's the really important part is that that uh the cycle is understood um what do you you're gonna maybe you can say something about um the mason the masonic side and how well that's i, I, I actually think i've got a slide that will do that so oh okay. and sure enough the sugar sweet good segue dude oh there you go <laughs> Okay, yeah, on the far right is a, a very, that's actually a typical Masonic trestle board too with the, uh, the tiled floor and the three pillars and the staircase heading right on up into the uh, sun, moon, and stars. Now, understand that this, this type of symbolism is literally worldwide. Um, the staircase, the the ladder. I mean, you've got Jacob's ladder. You've got the Mayan buildings in Mesoamerica. No, those aren't Nephites. Those are Mayan. And you have uh, the ziggurat in the in the old world. So this cosmology, this theme, and the reason I, I wanted to put the Kabbalah tree of life in here too, because that is again another symbolism of the latter, the theme of ascension. And interestingly enough, you guys, this also is a cycle like Travis was just talking about. This is why I've got uh, to the left of the Kabbalah Tree of Life is the Emerald Tablet, uh, because that talks about on earth as it is in heaven, up above, down below true story. And then, of course, this hypocephalus. I put the hypocephali in there because it, too, is cyclical, and yet 
It is the warm connection designed to keep the flame alive for the mummy so that he can get to heaven. We always seem, no matter where we go, whether in time or in place, to have these basics. If you don't get the basics, then you don't get all the details. So this went back to the beginning. Now, and, and this is the legend. Okay, so let, let's, let's talk about the maybe even the ideal. This goes back to the beginning. Now, many of the ancient legends go back, in the West at least, go back to Adam, right? Well, there are others in other uh, foreign countries, etc., that always also go back to a first being um, who presents the knowledge in the West. It's Hermes Trismegistus with this emerald tablet. In the Kabbalistic Zohar, it is Enoch who keeps coming back and giving the rabbis their revelations. Uh, I mean, you know, in the Egyptians, it's Thoth. In the Freemasons, it's Hiram Abiff, et cetera, et cetera. There's always someone to pass down this knowledge, and they receive it. Uh, and that's why I put in the Al-Biruni reference. Uh, it came from the Cave of Treasures, and that's where the knowledge uh, was deposited by Adam, was in what they called the Cave of Treasures. And all of our mystery traditions have this as its basis and definitely influenced the Mormon temple endowment. And that was the point of this slide. So uh, what, do you, what do you think, Travis? Want to elaborate yeah, on and I, I think that one of the, the things that this, this foreshadows is that with regards to um, Joseph Smith and with, with regards to the Book of Abraham, there's a, there's a, a lens for, you know, a Masonic motif there. We, we understand that. Um, but I would suggest that there's a lens for, for maybe even a stronger lens, much stronger lens for some of the deeper hermeticism, you know, such as Kabbalah. And, um, you know, depending on which lens you have, you, you can have quite a different view of things. Um, what, we, what I would suggest is that um, Joseph did, viewed all of his, <clears throat> all of his stuff all of his revelation, his interpretation, um, through a, more of a Kabbalistic lens than through a Freemasonic free lens. Um, I think it can be demonstrated, you know, quite a bit uh, in, in a lot of different areas. Um, the The difficulty is that the reader would have to be able to tease out, you know, what's 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 different from Masonry and what's different from um, Kabbalah under the umbrella of Hermeticism. That is where we are coming in. That's what we're mm -hmm. going to do for our audience through a series of these uh, shows. That this is what intrigued me so much about your view. Is there there is other materials that are not being elaborated on, and so yeah. So I didn't mean to interrupt you. Keep going. Well, and one of the reasons why this was, was important to me is because um, in the last year, there have been two books uh, published by, by, you know, LDS authors, I believe. I'm not sure if, if, uh, if they're all LDS, but tell me. Um, the Method Infinite, you know, which we've gone over quite a bit on the show with yeah. uh, um, Bruno Litzerski and Swick. 
And mm-hmm. then um, alongside that is Jeffrey Bradshaw's, you know, Freemasonry and the Origins of the, te- of the Temple. Mm-hmm. Both of them published this past year, 2022. But one of the things is they, they make strong arguments and they, they show a lot of, of data that links Joseph Smith to Masonry when I'm saying mm, the link is actually not to Masonry. I, I see it more of a hermeticism, even going beyond that, more of a Kabbalah. And so um, if, if one is not um, careful, then, you know, you just see the surface of that. And to, to make an illustration, I, I think Joseph Smith was very aware of this situation. He was aware of the deeper parts of hermeticism um, beyond Masonry. And it's one of the reasons why there's a, a presentation of literally reaching through Masonic emblems in order to, to grasp something of a, of a higher truth. There, there's, a, there's a presentation of that and that is, to me, it's telling. It's an instructive, it's an instructive telling thing. And so yeah. when, we look at, when we look at, say, for example, the, the temple endowment, and we see masonry. I'm I'm suggesting that we're not we're not seeing far enough in, and we're not reading what um, Joseph intended at all. We're missing the point. Um, and unfortunately, when we have leaders that in the past some who have and some who have not adopted the the interpretation that masonry played a part in the in the endowment process or or creation. Um, I, sh- I shouldn't even use that word in, in putting together the endowment liturgy um, the, the, the consequences of, of what, someone, what someone comes out with is, is vastly different and, um, and in that respect I think that the many Latter-day Saints lose out on a lot of meaning and value because of this and who's responsible for this Sadly, is is the uh, the latter day Saint apologetics? You know, I don't think that oh, they, they've done a deep enough, a good enough job at really, really, you know, expressing teaching this stuff, which has been around for for plenty of time. And um, uh, yeah, so we're being too shallow. I, maybe I I shouldn't say that, but I I think that we can go deeper. Well, I do. <laughs> I'll take the heat. I said it. We're being too shallow. Uh, or or uh, maybe I can put it a little bit more charitably. Um, there are deeper dives that we very can and very properly ought to be attempting to get into, which is where you and I are coming in. That's why we're doing this show somewhat. Does that yeah. sound fair? Yeah. 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 And, because, and um, you know, cons- consider the 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 theme of um of zion and the uh the creation in in ancient judaism there's a term called tikkum olam t-i-k-k-u-n-o-l-a-m and it refers to a like a restoring creation or raising a higher eden and so in order to in order to you know physically materially do some things like this um, one would have to have this hermetic knowledge. And if I would suggest that if anybody did have such a knowledge or, or maybe even a, a sliver of it at that time period, it was Joseph Smith. 
he he seems to he seems to um, he seems to dial all the archetypes in correctly, um, whether we like it or not. That's you know, and this is this is um, away from some of you know maybe the more controversial aspects of his personality or, or his history or something like that. Just right. straight consistency with the hermeticism, the same kind of thing that authors like Harold Bloom recognized. Um, if Gershom Shlom was around, he probably would have said the same thing about uh, of Joseph Smith and a number of other authors. We both have read, uh, you know, we, folks like Lance Owens, um, Hugh Nibley, you know, his and work. I, and I just, I just held this one up, The Refiner's Fire by Brooks. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's definitely in line with what you're saying here. And so what we find though is what's interesting as as a as a latter is saying is in, in the end, we have authors like Hugh Nibley who are saying Joseph Smith's Kabbalah. And then we have yeah. authors like um, you know, maybe maybe Jeffrey Bradshaw and the the crew who wrote the um, Method Infinite. No, mm -hmm. Joseph Smith is more more Masonic. Um those are incompatible. They're incompatible conceptualizations because uh, particularly because one's an ascension motif and the other one's a cycle motif. And those we can get into a little bit later. But um, at some point, the, the discussion has to be had. You know, which, which way does, does a, a Latter-day Saint, which lens does a Latter-day Saint use to look at this, this temple endowment? Yeah, yeah, and there is, and like you're saying, there's a lot of background to get into this. So mm. here, here we go. Let me, uh, let me go to this next slide. Now, this one is important to me because I've had this discussion with a few people. I just want to broach the subject at this point. Uh, it doesn't matter. Both uh, Egypt and Greece, two completely different nationalities and country. Thoth and Hermes, they were the psychopomp and the psychogogus who conducted spirits from the upper world to the lower and from the lower world to the upper. What this did, these were the symbolic uh, embodied representations of that link between the worlds. And this is one of the keys to the ancient Egyptian hypocephaly uh, because the way they are created. Now, I'm getting this not from Hugh Nibley and not from Michael Dennis Rhodes and not from John Gee or Kerry Mulstein. I'm getting this from the Egyptologist Thomas Amas Mekis. And I will be getting his book on the hypocephaly for Christmas this year. So I'm very excited about that. But I, I have a research of his. He and I are exchanging information. And he has described how the hypocephaly is concerning the different worlds. Uh, and so I also wanted to include the Navajo sand paintings. This was shocking to me when it dawned on me that this worldwide motif really does exist. It's not in just our imaginations. The Navajo also have their mythologies, their ideologies. Uh, this particular sand painting is elaborated on by Joseph Campbell in his Inner Reaches of Outer Space. Beautifully so, 
where the young messengers travel from the lower world to the upper to receive some kind of a token or an important bit of knowledge that they then have to come back down the Axis Mundi and uh, save the earth with. This type of thinking is what the Emerald Tablet is attempting to do, as above, so below. It is in the ancient Indian civilizations with their shamans following the lead of Mercedes Iliana, so on and so forth. So what we're getting here is there is more to it than just our earth. And everyone anciently knew that, and they definitely put that into their theology and practice. So, and I will do some further explorations on these different themes in other podcasts, in videos with, uh, with Travis as well. I say I will, we will, because this is such a prominent theme. Do you, do you want to add anything, Travis? No, no. That's, uh, I, I, I think that is important to, to recognize the, the universality of, 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 uh, of hermeticism as not being, you know, isolated to any one region, but that there's, there seems to be a, a common thread um, in, in places where we find temples and civilization, but particularly temples. Yeah, it just, it just seemed temples were just, look, whether, whether we accept it or not nowadays, um, temples have been a part pretty much most of the ancient high civilizations all the way through humanity for the last 6,000 years. That's, that's just how we are. <laughs> because I think we're trying to, because we look up. And when you look up, that cosmos, that Milky Way band of stars, it just blows your mind. It's a, it's a it's a fascinating meditation, you know. They didn't have television to distract them. They didn't have computers to instruct them like we're doing tonight. Distract them more than instruct them. Now, this is a fascinating idea here. You'll notice the figure seated on the right. He's got a Kepri beetle for a face. And you go, man, that's gross. That's weird. The symbol here is absolutely spectacular spectacular, however. Let's understand this Hermetic Egyptian Kepri principle. First, it's in our mind. Uh, we are an intelligence, and this is the Hermetic principle. This is the Egyptians. They said, we do have an intelligence. Let's use it. And this, this comes, of course, from Plato and Plotinus. And what we're doing is we're seeking a unity with God, following the course of nature. And the way this is occurring is through the returning with the new year. And this renewal, this procession is not an annihilation, but it is a changing. Death is not the end. They never thought that in Egypt. They said it is a change, but not an end. So uh, there's a restoration. The form has changed. The Kepri principle of the sun god Ray, he's changing hourly, and yet he remains constant, complete, and he shares the entire universe. And this is the, this is the variation 
of this cycle that Travis was talking about. You have the day, then you have the night. Well, when the sun sets, that is not the annihilation of the sun. But it's gone at nighttime. You don't see it. It's gone. So you may think it's an annihilation. Well, for 12 hours, it's in what they call the duat, the underworld. But it isn't annihilated because there is a sunrise. You see how they get that that uh, symbolism. And then, of course, the wet, the dry. And what this did is it gives us it gives us the three pillar foundations. Uh, upper world, middle earth, and underworld. So Tolkien had it right when he mentioned middle earth in his in his wonderful stories. Absolutely. And this is the same thing. They, they put it in with the doctrine of man. This is how we became a tripartite being with the spirit, the soul, and the body. So, so that's basically the theme of this Kepri principle. The dung beetle used to roll around the little balls of dung, and it looked like they, they've got him pictured. You can see this upper picture here with the uh, sun. Uh, it looks like a Kesmet playing board, and then there's a, a circle over on his the left of that beetle. Now, that's, that is a king's cartouche. That is a king's name. Both of these are king cartouches. I used to be able to read a little Egyptian. I, I'm not quite sure what he said. That looks like an ibis there. And then that's the mesh, mesh it. Uh, this is the windpipe and then the beetle. I, I honestly don't. It's been a while. I'm rusty. But anyway, so this is the idea. Uh, what do you think, Travis? Yeah, the um, this we see this also kind of moved through into into the ancient Israelite festivals, particularly with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, whereby the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies once a year. And what what Mary, you know, a number of scholars say is that the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies for a number of reasons, but one is to reconstitute and purify the creation. You know, within there is the ark, it's a you know symbolic earth reconstituting the atmosphere within the holy of holies the intermingling the light the dark the warm the the cool all these different aspects and then coming out when it's finished is um, symbolic of kind of the the high priest emerging from a, into a new creation so we we see this hermeticism play into say even yom kippur mm -hmm. yeah that that reminds me of the uh... Barker, Margaret Barker's uh, yes. uh, Cosmic Covenant, I believe is the, I believe is the title. That's Robert Murray. Margaret Barker's is uh, Creation. She wrote the book on creation. And then also hers is um, uh, The Gate of Heaven. We'll go in that one too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a good one. Well, she's but, also, I've got this photocopied. This, uh, it's in The Ecologist for January 2000, The Book of Enoch and Cosmic Sin the great oath which binds the forces of the creation through our wickedness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, that's, that's the what, cosmic covenant. And that's Murray, right? This is Barker's. Yeah, that's Robert Murray, and this is Barker's, yeah, that's creation. Barker's creation. Yeah, and then I've got Murray, Father Robert Murray, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got his article out of The Ecologist, the same issue, January 2000. I'm talking about the cosmic covenant. So you've got the books. I've just read the articles. See, that's what I'm saying, folks. 
Travis is always ahead of me by one or two steps. That's why we're good friends because I love talking to him. He's teaching me more than I ever imagined I was going to learn. So, yeah. So this, this idea, well, let me ask your opinion, Travis, would I be overstepping my bounds if I was to propose as a hypothesis that we are dealing with a living cosmos? Yeah, I, I think I, I think that's a, a, a good term to use. It kind of gets mystical woo-woo somewhat. Some people, they get uncomfortable with it. Why do you suppose that is? I, you know, I don't know. I, I, um, I recently read an article just this on, um, it, was, it was by some, some scholars, some LDS scholars, and it was about the Book of Abraham and the, the astronomy in it. The astronomy in it, um, the complaint was that it's uh, a geocentric astronomy. And, you know, if, these, if Abraham or Joseph or any of these people were, were in, in knowledge, they would understand that, you know, the earth is not the center of the universe. Um, it's, and that, I've heard that argument a number of times, but as, as just an illustration, um, the geocentric model is itself a tool. It's if you're in, in any time you, a person or a patriarch, patriarch would want to settle new land. They would need the tool of the cosmos, a geocentric model to kind of understand where, what the seasons are, what the systems are, um, what the ecology is of the area. Um, and so the, uh, when we read, um, the about you know geocentrism in, in ancient in ancient contexts i don't think it really s explains that people saw the the world that way rather it explains that they knew how to use the tool um i i use the geocentric model as a tool as a farmer but i understand what the nature of the universe is and that it's not necessarily what that what that tool expresses um, oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 So, you know, that, I think that that's something to think about is that, you know, a lot of these ancient things, um, they do get woo woo, but, uh, and if they do, and there's not really a tangibility to them, then I yeah. think it is woo woo. You know, the, the, it, the heaven needs to meet the earth. Something needs to grasp, you know, there has to be some, some use utility, something, um, in the knowledge to make it, you know, valuable. Well, I mean, there is influence from the heat and light of the sun directly on the earth, just yeah. like there really is gravitational influence of the moon on the ocean, etc. There, There is a genuine interconnection, not just woo-woo astrological new age thinking. And I think the ancients grasped that. I think that's one of the purposes of the story, don't you, about when Abraham was, you know, when he was first studying the stars and all, he was big, big whoopty hip into the astrology. And then, of course, God came down and told him, no, 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 don't do astrology. Here's the astronomy part of it. And so he converted from astrology. You know, you get all those old stories. But Yeah. And, and even in the astrology side of it, um, you know, we understand that there's a lot of uh, say Protestant Christians or just religious folks that are really against the astrology and for the way right. it's practiced, that's, that's understood. But, you know, alchemically speaking and calendrically speaking, um, 
you know, astrology is just a relationship of different force or different, different motif or different archetype. That's it. And so astrology, um, one of the ways that, that agriculturists use it is, um, you know, just to anticipate newer cycles of, of heat or, or cool. Um, we know that the, the sun does, you know, the sun affects solar wind, all that has such a, an effect oh, on, yeah. on our weather. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, th this kind of, this kind of knowledge, um, is, uh, you know, ingrained in some natural component. There's some, there's some, there's, or I should say embedded, there's some natural component embedded in this knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. here's an example too. Um, if, if, a if, a um, farmer really understands say the moon cycle, that farmer can look at the earth and look at his plants and understand exactly what the moon is because even if it's cloud cover for weeks and weeks on end, um, because the plants all respond a certain way during certain parts of the moon phase. So, um, oh, interesting. you know, yeah. that's kind of a, a reverse way of working it. But I imagine the ancients were, were much more conscious of that than I, I could be, you know, and the nuances and of the change. If So if I'm able to do that, then, you know, they do, they can do that much more. And it also expresses too that, this this so-called woo-woo knowledge, like I said before, there you know there needs to be a place where the heaven does meet the earth. Um, if it's if if it's all you know geared towards um, the grandiose of the soul, you know, and and you know making the the self greater or more majestic or whatever worshipful, uh, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's the whole point, you know, and. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of nuances here to <laughs> to work through, isn't there? Mm. All right. So am I on the right one or am I on this one still? Yeah, that was the Kepra. Yeah, I wanted to come to this one now. So this this idea here, what we wanted to get across is just that Hermeticism began relatively early. And, and when I say relatively early, uh, Greco-Roman times, you know, during the Hellenization of the Jews, uh, be a little bit before Christ, but its influence really never uh, disappeared. It shifted between the nations without question, but it's kind of like Gnosticism. It's always been here in someone's culture. Uh, maybe a particular culture booted them out and burned their books and all, <coughs> Christians, early Christians. But that didn't mean Gnosticism was destroyed. It simply went over to Arabia. Same thing with this hermetic philosophy and theology. But the, the scholarship does say Gnosticism was absolutely infected with this hermetic materials and Kabbalah ideas were also. And this went from Jesus's day through the medieval ages into our own day, including, and that's why I put that circle above the uh, Jesus figure and the Mary and the uh, King there uh, in that circular figure. Now that's a Kabbalistic diagram, but this, this presentation of the actual symbolism itself in a circle that gives us the basis of the cycle, a cosmological 
cycle with various pieces parts and yet you combine all of those pieces parts into one eternal round and we see just visually without even having to read the hebrew and the latin and the english on this we see this theme of the many becoming the one there is only one full circle here the diagram the overarching one and yet there's many thousands of parts yeah see they created their symbolism to reflect this kind of a, a thinking so uh, i thought that was kind of fun to to share with you and then and on this one too now here we are getting into uh some of the basis of the hermetic uh, influence and doctrine on Joseph Smith's very unique and interesting doctrines that he took from his environment, not necessarily by revelation, but it was in his environment. It had to have been because Hermeticism did not disappear in early America. And that is that there is no destruction, only change. The, the theme, the palingenesis, the rebirth, this hope of redemption. They all had it in Joseph Smith's day. This is the yearning of all mankind. They called this the prima materia or the materia prima. What this was in the hermetic materials, and, and Travis, you can correct me and elaborate on this if I've got this wrong. This divine spirit theme, this original primal matter is where the universe came from. And that is what we are body and spirit the alchemists symbolized it with this gentleman on that orb with the dragon and he is holding the freemasonic square and compass it's the rebus the double-headed person some interpret that saying looking to the past and the future others say well no that's male and female combined into one androgyne which originally adam and eve were supposed to have been created like that etc so Tell us, tell us uh, your view on this, Travis. Yeah, the um, this this plays a little bit into the um, the figure of the Adam Cadmon. Um, oh yeah, the Kabbalah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The cosmic man, of course. And yeah, very good. There, one of the things I, I you know, as a, I, I explain the concept to to my children in this way because it's. Uh, um, it makes it easier just to imagine and to visually picture. But um, imagine, uh, like on a planet like Mars, to lay down, you know, the the archetypal perfect human body, perfect human figure, and mm -hmm. lay that body down on the the naked uh, planet to rest, and that from that the decomposition of that body. A small atmosphere would be created, you know, and that would, you know, spark life for other creatures. And, and it is as if the, the key of all creation is, is all composed of that single man. And so laying that body, that sacrifice to the earth or to Mars or whatever, um, is the equivalent of setting a seed, a perfect seed on, on, a, on a, you know, space rock. And letting creation evolve from that in, you know, 5.6 billion years or however long it takes. Um, 
th that's kind of an evolutionary mix on the Adam Kadmon, but it's a way to look at it. So the, the hermeticism is, is woven into it. And it's not something that, I mean, it's, it's out there. I mean, we're talking about seeding humans to planets, but at the same time, that kind of far out thought is, you know, it's, it's present in some of the ancient texts. Um, and it yeah. seems that Joseph might've been alluding to that too, a little bit with the idea that there are many worlds and many creations and, you know, many mansions, you know, that kind of thing. And that um, was in, uh, that was in uh, Joseph Smith's Pearl of Great Price. But now we know uh, he really truly could have gotten that. I believe uh, I better get this right. My audience will slap me. Thomas Dick, I believe, mm -hmm. had this this uh, plurality of worlds theme. That, uh, I believe it was him. Wouldn't have been Adam Clark. He was more the Bible commentator. I think Thomas Dick was more the philosopher. The many worlds idea. Anyway, so yeah. Uh, now this doesn't. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm gonna go out on a limb here, and then you elaborate. I don't think just because Joseph Smith took it from his environment that it damns him of prophetic ability of, of being a good religious leader. Would I be out of line by saying that? I, I don't know. I, I, I personally would say I think that what, I mean, from what I gather, he had some remarkable experience um, and how we we interpret that experience or those experiences is is a whole different conversation but what i see is that uh, from whatever experiences whatever was planted into his soul um he it, it gave him uh a key or a map with which to view everything else and so that's why we, maybe we see him he's he's wow. seeing things in his natural environment um, you know, based on this fixation of his visions. And so, um, you know, when I read, when I read the history, um, that kind of idea just makes more sense to me um, than he, you know, pieced different things together in the environment and pulled it all together. Um, that to me, there's too much unity and there's, there's consistency in what he did. There's too much, um, too many of the archetypes fit and um, for him to have pieced it together. And, uh -huh. uh, so I, I do think he used his environment in the same way, maybe a shaman, you know, uses totem, you know, whereby a shaman may, may, you know, touch a sword and whether the sword just be made five minutes ago or 5,000 years ago, it, you know, he's got a story about it, you know, and, and right. some right. mythology about it. Yeah, um, and maybe it it's true. This particular god, and the, yeah, yeah, but maybe it is. Maybe it is a, an ancient artifact, and he is, you know, feeling that and resonating. Uh, to me, that's all too much speculation, and it's it's right. fun to talk about, but um, right. that that's uh, it's not really that relevant. Um, but it's uh, I do think that, that that there's enough there to to at least say that whatever experience he had, it it traumatized him to the extent that he was fixated and he saw in his environment those themes that he, you know, had envisioned. You know, they were always always relating to something else and, and triggering off of his environment. Um, 
you know, it's just a different, different way, but it, some of the, all of this makes a little bit more sense maybe as we get down the line, um, you know, with that kind of view. And that's kind of what he said happened to him. You know, it's a lot of yeah. the scholarship that's really tried to, to yeah. piece together a history and say, where to get it from based on his environment. That's like saying, you know, as a joke, you know, Beethoven, he must have, he liked donuts. And so, you know, he was around donuts all day and he was eating donuts. And so therefore his music must have been, you know, informed by donuts and Mozart, you know, he liked croissants. And so his music was informed by croissants just because they were in his environment and he, you know, participated all the time. I don't see, I don't see an immediate, you know, connection. I do see, however, that he, Joseph did use masonry um, as a tool, um, as even a strategy. Um, it was, it was very helpful to him. Um, but I don't think he was informed by it. That's, I, he, his, especially with the temple, because um, the, his conceptualization of the temple, I would argue, begins as early as, say, Section 59 in the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, I would say 59, then Section 89, and then finally 109 is where you put those three together. And that, to me, is uh, much more representative of the temple than you know, some of the other stuff that, that scholars kind of focus on. And yeah, and I want to I wanna tell our audience, you heard him right. He did say DNC 89. We've had some wonderful talks. That's the word of wisdom. We will elaborate on that in ways that's going to blow you away. His analysis of the word of wisdom in relationship to the cosmos and the calendar is incredible. I'm just saying, you don't want to miss that. We will. We have plans for future shows. So, yeah, just so you're aware, you did not mishear that. Uh, Travis has really rocked my world describing his research into this, and we will be sharing that with you. Sorry, I had to put that plug and, in, Travis. Well, I, another thing, too, is, you know, some, I would, um, I uh, we, we maybe backyard professor, you can, you can also discuss this with the audience that we've, uh, these topics that we're going to be bringing up, they're not um, just kind of out of thin air. They're, they're supported and substantiated by texts. And, oh yeah. Um, the, the texts are, are, you know, reputable scholars and not, not kind of new agey stuff or anything like that. Fundamentally so. Yeah, no, we're talking, um, we're talking actual scholarship here. Truly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Because I, I think sometimes that it, it, just the how close Hermeticism uh, piggybacks with with New Age, um, you know, puts a, puts a different flavor on it for for different audiences. Um, it does, yeah. It's like the way the New Age has bastardized the use of the tarot cards. Yeah, to, to the point of stupid, ridiculous, and so yeah. nobody takes the the themes of the tarot cards, but they are very hermetic and Kabbalistic, remarkably so, with a symbolism, which means they're pointing to something beyond. And we concretize the metaphor in our organized religions too much. And so they say, oh, well, playing cards, those are of the devil. <laughs> 
I don't buy that noise. It's because you're literalizing it for Pete's sake. So, yeah. yeah and, and that's another discussion. We can get into mm. that. I mean, there are boatloads of stuff with this hermetic stuff. So mm. let me uh, let me move on to this next one, unless you had something else you wanted to throw in. Okay, let, let's, uh, let's take a look at... Now, this one I wanted to bring out just as a cultural context, and I'm well aware that Hugh Nibley is the one that brought this out, but he is not the only one. I'm just saying, so let's understand this. This is not an attempted Mormonization of the classical Greek or the ancient Egyptian. This really is a bona fide, again, this gets back to this world motif. And the reason I picked the Egyptian hypocephali and the Greek shield of Achilles is because Egypt and Greece, Thoth and Hermes have been put together through the scholarship. What these do is they give us the symbolism of embracing the whole of life. The entire human race is symbolized and the essence of the ancient wisdom, all of the mysteries, the philosophy, the Kabbalah, the Freemasonry, the science, the temple endowment, the theme is the many is fundamentally the one. And that is not mystical woo-woo. That is ancient wisdom. So th this is this was the purpose of this particular slide. And but fascinatingly enough, now this was out of Hugh Nibley's posthumous publication, The One Eternal Round. Now, Trevor, you've read that one, haven't you? Yeah, I have the, the One Eternal Round. Yeah, yeah, you said you were a Nibley reader. I personally thought that if if we can if we can uh, grant Nibley his, his uh, Mormon apologetic and look beyond that into his analysis, wouldn't you say his One Eternal Round is fundamentally one of his greatest books? Yeah, yeah. I, um, and, and I think that he, he went out on a limb and took con some considerable risks in, Good in writing. Um, I, I think also that, that uh, yeah, I, it might have upset some people enough to, you know, really put a, put a, a side in, into farms. You know, like I sometimes think that, that uh, some, some of the, the establishment wanted to make sure never to never to have a Hugh Nibley again, you know? <laughs> and um, I, 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 I think, I think he caused a lot more, uh, you know, some, a lot more waves in the sea than, than we, we know of, you know, up top. Um, I so, yeah. But, uh, you know, we'll never find out about that. Probably not. Um, but yeah, and the reason we're saying that, you guys, if you haven't read this book, and it's not his most popular book, but it really should have been, even though he published it after his death, his he goes through the the hypocephali uh, figure by figure, which was fun, but he's doing it with the Mormon apologetic, and I'm not complaining about it. I'm just saying being aware of that will help us be able to discern if he is uh, misunderstanding the Egyptian. And like I say, 
I'm doing some research with the help of, of Dr. Mekis, the Egyptologist who is live today and the world leading expert on hypocephaly. So I will be able to compare and cross check. But then after you get through that, he goes into the uh, the Ascension dramas, a spectacular chapter. He's kind of pulled it all together. And then he goes into the, uh, and it's a big chapter. Then he goes into the Jewel of Discernment, and this is the Emerald Tablet that actually, amazingly enough, has tie-ins with the diamonds on the breastplate of the high priest in the ancient Israelite religion and the Urim and Thummim. I mean, there's there's so many interesting connections here that we can talk about with this jewel of discernment. And then this is the chapter that we've taken our information from tonight in these slides is Joseph Smith, the Hermetic Tradition and the Hypocephalus. So far as I'm aware, no one has ever analyze the hermetic tradition in as much detail. And all we're doing is given a bare outline. And then his next chapter is the Kabbalah. He actually gave it its due. Not totally. I mean, he was a Mormon apologist. Let's, let's admit it. He was a Mormon scholar. But man, for him to get this kind of positive analysis of the Hermetic materials, of the Kabbalah, is absolutely incredible. Then he goes into Alexander the Great. Then he goes into sacred geometry, and he shows the mathematical aspects of applying sacred geometry to the facsimiles, etc. It is one hell of a spectacular effort. I personally am hoping through time, that it will rub off on the LDS scholarship, and they will begin to include other disciplines besides what the prophets say in teaching us truth. You want to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I, um, I, it seems that since, since Nibley, there haven't been many LDS apologists or scholars that, um, you know, really... Uh, took his lead and and further developed some of these themes that he thought were so important. And, right. um, he devoted it, decades of his life to it. Yeah, and I I would attribute that to uh, the culture of that the the LDS apologists, you know, whatever whatever kind of culture they have. I, it, yeah. um, from the outside looking in, sometimes it feels like. Uh, like those guys are kind of self-serving um, and the rest of us in the congregation are, you know, we're of, we're of no uh, importance to, to the, the scholarship, they, you know, anything like that. Because ultimately I, I think one of their, their obligations and responsibilities is to um, bring forth new knowledge, new material, um, new feast, you know, new meaning, new value, things that, that um, bring us new insight, um, you know, give us more meaning to live with. And in, they in failed. My ex yeah, I think there's, geez, there needs to be a lot of work. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you and I are going to kind of pick up a little bit of that slack somewhat. So I, I do hope, like you said, I do hope that, um, 
maybe some scholars will look at this and, and take a, a second, you know, gander and say, you know, this is worth worth looking at because as it is right now, you and I are going to do that somehow. <laughs> in our city, truly. Okay. I mean, we've got the next 15 years to work together and produce fabulous podcasts. We're going to. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I've already I've already wrestled Travis into doing this with me because these are some of my favorite themes. And I'm finding out that they're his, too. So he's almost stuck with me. I feel his pain, but he'll get over it. <laughs> OK, let's uh, let's jump on the and finally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to share this because. This is actually something I had not even heard of until I read Nibley's book. And now I see it in a lot of places. And, and so, you know, it takes a Nibley to give us something really cool. The Tablet of Sebes. Now, I'm going to pronounce this Sebes, C-E-B-E-S. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. I, I, I hope I am. I may not be. I'll, I'll confess that. This is about the pilgrimage of humanity through life. Now, it was a symbol. It was a drawing. It was a chart. It was a diagram that showed up in the 1500s. It's like a hologram, a theatricum of, of, of the whole world. And what it is, is it consists of concentric circles. And uh, it went through many translations and editions, but the cosmos and all of humanity is divided into the underworld, the middle world, and the heaven. That's why you have the three different eccentric rings. It's very similar to a temple layout, and that's what's so interesting. We have the universal quadrate and the up and down for the ascension motive all in one symbol, which is fantastic. The ultimate reward is the embrace and the crown one receives at the very top from the figure who is on the throne from the height. And this tablet of Sebes was very popular in the Middle Ages. And that's why I thought the whole structure of this thing, you can't help, not because... It's Mormon, but you can't help but think of the hypocephalus when you talk about and see the various depictions of this tablet of Sebes. So again, this archetype of not only ascension, but revolution, the cosmos tie in with the earth, etc. This is throughout the ages of the world. So, and do you want to add to that, Travis? No, no, that's, that's, that's good. That, that's just another one of those little things that you go, oh, hey, how cotton picking cool is that? Whoops, sorry, I, I hit the dictionary. It was covered. And now this one, and I do believe this is our final slide uh, and we're right on target. Now, an entire hour and a half, and we may very well do this. Travis and I are putting our heads together for some for some stuff. Uh, the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, th this is so fantastic. I, it, this this is the grand summation of all of it. They called it. This is the goal. This is the goal of the work. The Philosopher's Stone. 
and we can't get into a lot of detail right now. The symbol of this is so fantastically interesting because every one of these shapes, of course, are the platonic solids as well when you get them into 3D, but it's also the basis of the geometry connection with all of the various shapes, the circle, the triangle, the square, and the circle in the square. All of this has a uh, meaning. What this is ultimately, the Philosopher's Stone, is the miniature version of the, the whole. <laughs> it's actually a miniature version of the many becoming one. Uh, and it doesn't do away with the many. It's just that it unifies them all as one. That's what this is talking about. So, And it's the joining of the opposites. And that's the point of the great work. It's the masculine and the feminine, the hot and the dry, the wet and the dry, the hot and the cold, I should say, into that which nothing affects it. Uh, and it unites all the powers in all things and even fire, which anciently was considered the ultimate um, element of not only destruction now, and this is, this is part of the paradox that the ancients and the mystics and the mysteries have been working with for millennia, is these opposites, the paradoxes, the fire is so terribly destructive. And yet, on the other hand, the fire is a purifying agent. Without it, you don't get rid of the dross out of metal. It helps make things stronger. Stop, is, oh, hey, hey, have your daughter wave at us. Woohoo! Oh, Hi, my, sweetie. My little ones. Yeah. Um, oh, welcome to the show. I was just wrapping up here anyway. So this is what they called the Philosopher's Stone. This is why they called this the Elixir of Life, the Pyrophilus, the King's Crown. You notice all of these symbols, you're not supposed to concretize them and take them literal. Don't do that or you miss the whole point of the Philosopher's Stone. The Philosopher's Stone is the kingdom of God that's within us. So we are clothing ourselves into the reality of the one universe. That's the theme. So aren't kids awesome? Seriously, man, they're wonderful. Yeah, it's cool. They got to get in on it with dad, you know? <laughs> yeah, they, they were they were being uh, too patient. So, well, I mean, they're, you know, they've been an hour and a half without dad. Where's dad? He's talking to that stupid screen. So you can't blame the kids. So anyway. Uh, you want to you share your closing thoughts? We're at an hour and a half. We can. Yeah, I, I think that just um, uh, when where I'm coming from this is is that uh, Joseph was was clued into to calendar and to creation and to some of these hermetic themes a lot more than than we've given credit to. Um, and that the the current scholarship that we've been offered is insufficient, and that if we look at some of these things a little bit closer, um, whether or not you know the the institution is all it uh, claims to be, um, we will find that 
that um, that there's a lot of meaning and a lot of value that can be had, um, you know, in this in this kind of symbolism and in this these portrayals, these presentations. Yeah. And so as as we we move forward, um, I hope that we'll also get into understanding, you know, how really important it is that the this this hermetic connection between heaven and earth, the cosmos and, and this planet are, are corresponding to, to one another in a, in a like healthy way. Um, because ultimately that's what the, the temple is supposed to, to represent. And um, all of our, our laws, um, you know, how we treat the environment, you know, how we, how we go about with uh, you know our food supply and all these things, you know, transmit from you know these first archetypes, these first values, and so when they're off, everything else is off. Um, putting these things back oh, into place a little bit is a, is a form right of restoration, and it doesn't, you know, it, it, there's different ways to do it, but um, yeah, there uh, it's it's definitely a conversation that needs to be had. Well, and you and I will have it further. Also. And and thanks to all my comrades in the chat, Aloha comrades, love you, and I will um, I'll, I'll see you soon. All right, hey, thank you, Travis. Appreciate okay. it. We're thanks. gonna uh, we're gonna call it good and head out too. So uh, thank you all for coming. We will be doing more uh, together. Travis's knowledge is simply mind-boggling to me. He's like Dan Vogel. He just keeps right on. He's like Charlie Harrell and Richard Carrier and several of my former guests, all of my guests, Bruno and Leturska, they just keep going on and on. And it's it's incredible. It's mind-boggling. I love it. This is why I got into this, so that I could have such a great time learning with others and learning from others. So, all right, you guys, we will catch you next week. I have news heads up. I've got Colby Townsend coming on this coming Thursday. Yes. Colby Townsend. He is a double PhD student. You won't want to miss him. He's very well known in the LDS scholarly world. So uh, I will be having him on and we are going to be making many uh, podcast together as well. So keep your eyes peeled for Thursday. Don't forget Wednesday, Mormonism Live with Bill Real and RFM. Don't forget uh, next Sunday as well. Um, oh, crap. Next Sunday's Christmas. Ooh, maybe I'll do a Christmas special on Christmas Day. Who knows? We'll see how I'm feeling. So anyway, Thursday for sure with Colby Townsend. And I'll be doing a lot with him too. So love all you guys. You're awesome. Thanks for being such a spectacular audience. I will see you soon. Mm -hmm.